and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, I'm talking with Mike Horton, J. Gresson Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. He's co-host of the White Horse Inn and editor of Modern Reformation Magazine. He's also the author of many books, among them, Putting Amazing Back into Grace, Christless Christianity, The Award-Winning People and Place, and most recently, The Gospel-Driven Life. These titles are all available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. I've got to correct you on one thing. Face-to-face, you say. This, this takes people, uh, brings people face-to-face with the faculty. There's a reason why it's a podcast and uh, <laughs> audio rather than, than video. Uh, voice-to-voice, maybe not face-to-face, well, the I best thought, thing. I thought about saying face-to-ear, but that just seemed a, <laughs> a little strange. So I took it that people understand it's, it's metaphorically face-to-face. Well, it's great to have you here. Thanks and, for having me. And it's fun to, uh, to spend some, uh, some quality time together. The, the purpose of this initial series is to uh, let people get to know a little bit um, the faculty behind the books and behind the, uh, behind the microphone, behind the pulpit, uh, to, to, just to hear you talk a little bit about yourself and, and so they can get to know you um, a bit. And some of this may be familiar to some folks, but I guess a lot of folks don't know that you haven't always been Reformed. They might pick up one of your books and say, well, you know, here's one of these hard-nosed Reformed guys who has it all figured out, and he's always probably always been this way. No, actually, um, very very different from that. I wrote my first book, which was Mission Accomplished, um, actually as an attempt to, A, think through my own transition out of um, the background I'd been raised in, which was a strong evangelical, though Arminian, a strong evangelical Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church. My uh, folks were Christians, and my mom especially was uh, a daily Bible reader and engaged me in daily devotions, and we started arguing about uh, things as I began to uh, uh, discover with the help of some others, uh, including my own older brother, uh, some wonderful truths in Romans. And then I started reading the Puritans and, and Reformed theologians. I was in a, a, a very Arminian Pentecostal Christian school at the time, and as I was um, learning the doctrines of grace and asking questions in class, I found uh, greater and greater hostility to it. And uh, uh, so I had to defend it. And then I went on to public school, and I had to defend the whole Christian faith with my friends. And all of these were really wonderful uh, opportunities to dig more deeply and to know what I believed and why I believed it and eventually uh, started going to Reformed churches and realized that the Reformed uh, expression of Christianity is not just the five points of Calvinism, but it's the whole, uh, a whole way of looking at the Bible, a whole way of looking at salvation, a whole way of looking at the world um, in, in, through the lens of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And uh, so uh, the second reason I, I wrote that first book was to try to convince um, my family members uh, of the truth of the doctrines of grace. And so, no, very, very definitely, um, my, my uh, coming to Reformed Christianity was, uh, was, was not 
um, all at once. It certainly wasn't something that I was raised in, but I'm, I'm glad for even the Arminian uh, Baptist background I was raised in that, that did appreciate the Bible. Now, when people make a change like this, it's, it's in a context, obviously, and uh, what is it that caused you to, to begin to wonder whether you were seeing things rightly and maybe if there wasn't another way of looking at things? Yeah, Romans 4 was a big one uh, for me. All of the, uh, many of the first aha moments came f- through reading Romans. Romans 4, the justification of the ungodly. Uh, I had heard, of course, about forgiveness and uh, the need to have our sins forgiven. Uh, I would ask Jesus into my heart every morning when I got up mm. uh, just to make sure that I didn't miss heaven by a technicality. And... Uh, <laughs> But I had never heard about justification. At least it, it, I, I don't remember hearing about justification, uh, that we're actually declared righteous on account of Christ, not just forgiven. And that was a new moment. And then, of course, when I got to uh, Romans chapter 9, I remember throwing my Bible across the room. I was so uh, frustrated with what I read there about a sovereign God who can uh, have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and uh, have compassion on whom he will have compassion. That kind of God seemed altogether too free to me. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to be freer than God. No, and, that, that's uh, interesting, because that's not the way people think of, of Reformed folks. They, they don't imagine that anyone would uh, look at, at Romans 9 and struggle. Um, they, they assume, uh, I think, at least my experience suggests, that they assume that you know, we, we sort of start there, and uh, we work out from there everything else that, that we believe on the basis of what must be true on the basis of Romans 9. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it wasn't that way at all. I was simply reading Romans, yeah. and, and my pastor told me, I think you're becoming a Calvinist, and uh, as, as if I, he just told me I had cancer. <laughs> and uh, I... Uh, I I, I may be. What exactly is that? And I went back and I looked it up in the encyclopedia and I said, yeah, well, that is what I am. Oh, interesting. What did you think when you when you realized I might be on the verge of becoming a Calvinist? Did you think, oh no, I, I need to reverse course? Or how did you overcome the, the prejudice maybe with which you had been raised? I thought my first instinct when he said that was that, that maybe I'm wrong. I mean, he knows a lot more about the Bible than I do. Um, you know, maybe I, I need to, to to look into this. At the same time, I was I was tremendously liberated yeah. by the good news of the gospel and the wonderful comfort and assurance of a God who is sovereign and who who saves from start to finish. That was wonderfully comforting, and even more than that, it just connected with reality. And you know what happens when you actually sort of uh, uh, run aground on reality, it's just there, and there's no turning back. And I realized that this is the God who's there. This is not the the manageable deity who exists to make me happy Mm. and make sure that I'm having a good time. This this is the God uh, who is bigger than all of my hopes and aspirations, and the God who is this, the, the central character of this unfolding story. I'm, I'm not the central character in the unfolding plot of history. He is, and I'm a supporting actor. So 
that I think was uh, something, there was no turning back. And so I think that uh, at that point, I began to realize that I was just in the wrong church. Hmm. Had you ever met a Calvinist? Yes. I, even at, at that point, I had. He hadn't called it Calvinism. He was a chiropractor. Hmm. And uh, he hadn't called it Calvinism, but he had recommended some books. And then after that event with my pastor, I started going to the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Uh-huh. Got to know James Montgomery Boyce and R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer and others, and uh, that thus began uh, in my high school days a, a great uh, trek toward um, things reformed. And I discovered, really, with with each new year, uh, deeper implications of this wonderful theology. And I still am. It's it's amazing. I still haven't gotten to the point where I can say, "Oh, now I know what reformed theology is," because. Reformed theology is just a summary of Christianity. Hmm. It, you know, it, it it doesn't purport to be a, a different religion. That's why I'm not happy with the term the Reformed faith. There is no Reformed faith. There's a Christian faith. Reformed confessions, I believe, interpret that faith most biblically. Hmm. Now, uh, so you, obviously you continue going through high school and um, you're in college. When When do you begin thinking about ministry, about becoming a teacher. Obviously, I, you've already started writing. Yeah, I always wanted to be a pastor. Uh, always? Always, all my life. I okay. can't remember a time when... Uh, there were those, you know, fireman, uh, doctor moments, mm-hmm. but I, I really wanted uh, to be a pastor as, as far back as I can remember. Um, my mom, uh, I've hidden... I, I, I can't find it, and I'm not going looking for it, but my mom had this tape <laughs> of me... Uh, Preaching on a soapbox, literally. Oh, we know where that tape is. <laughs> We're saving that tape for a very special occasion. When I was a little, a wee one, and uh, I would regale my uh, cousins uh, with with my horrible preaching, and I uh, think that probably it is one of the reasons why so many of my cousins are estranged from the faith. <laughs> Did but, you have a set up an altar and and have them come forward and I remember in in one of the the pieces of that sermon I was like my mom says that I was four and a half or five I I remember saying uh, now if uh, uh, you know if you're a Roman Catholic or a Presbyterian <laughs> then you need to be converted you need to believe in Jesus you need to accept Jesus into your heart. And, uh, yeah, the theology has changed somewhat since then. And as you went through school, how did your sense of ministerial vocation uh, change, and, and, and how did it develop? Well, uh, I uh, w- went to Biola University. I went to Biola University after uh, high school, and uh, I then went to uh, this seminary, Westminster Seminary, California, and Why here, by the way? I mean, you had other options. So, how did that? How did you work through that decision? I knew since high school that this is where I wanted to come. I wanted mm-hmm. uh, then I wanted to go to Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of California then; it was brand new. And uh, I remember coming to uh, meet Robert Strimple years and years ago. This was when I was, I guess, a, a junior in high school, mm-hmm. and. Westminster Seminary, California, was meeting in a storefront in San Marcos. That was the seminary, yeah. and uh, but I just knew, especially after talking to Dr. Strimple, that 
it was people with, with people like him that I wanted to study. And I had read John Murray's writings. I was becoming uh, uh, very indebted to uh, the work of Westminster professors. So I, I just knew this was the place and was in no way, shape, or form dissatisfied. If anything, it was better than I'd imagined. So you, so you go through college and you find yourself in seminary. Was it what you expected? Yeah, it was. It, in many ways, it was better. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. to get to know people I had only met at conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, you know, upfront. They were. Uh, I had read their books and and articles, and I thought of them as, you know, m- most of my friends thought of baseball players. Uh, and uh, that's what we need. We need. Uh, baseball cards for seminary programs. Well, since since uh, our dear president, Robert Godfrey, was one of them, uh, it, <laughs> would, it would need a lot of work. Yeah, exactly. But what, what would we put in place of batting average? <laughs> anyway. Well, he was one of them. Uh, I, you know, the, just the very possibility that, that uh, you could get to know professors yeah. you respected and read. Um, Did you spend time with them here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And... and uh, that was a surprise to me. That was a shock that I would be able to meet them and, and maybe say hi in the hallways uh, was, was one thing. But to be actually able to day after day meet with them, go to lunch with them, hmm. uh, stop by their offices and ask a question, I, that just, uh, I don't think that you have a mix of accessibility and working scholarship in in a community quite like this. It's really remarkable, and I think a lot of that stems from the fact that it's a small school, and it's determined to stay small. Yeah. yeah, we have a limit as to the number of students we can admit, so it will always remain an intimate place in which to do, in which to do uh, education. What do you think would be um, the biggest or one of the biggest changes that took place for you while you were in seminary? Uh, I was poorer. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that one of the one of the biggest changes for me was, uh, I, I had all already begun through again the the writings of a lot of Westminster people and others. I had already come to uh, appreciate covenant theology and um, uh, uh, eschatology, the emphasis on eschatology that you find in Gerhardus Voss and and Herman Ritterboss. But, you know, when you're teaching yourself, you're, you're only picking up what you are capable of teaching yourself, and that, that is pretty finite, pretty myopic. In coming here, uh, I, just, I was taught all sorts of things that I never would have studied on my own, including the biblical languages. Yeah. And I, I think that... Uh, a deeper insight into biblical hermeneutics and interpretation, certainly uh, a, a, an, an amazing <laughs> opportunity to study with Meredith Klein. Mm-hmm. Um, these were not just great teachers. These were paradigm-shifting teachers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we still have that very much on the faculty today. Um, that that tradition continues, but I I remember walking out of uh, different classes, especially I think of uh, Meredith Klein's classes, and not just saying I have more information, but I think completely differently. Yeah, and it was mind blowing. 
every class, I, I would say he can't do it again, and he would. <laughs> now, not everybody teaches like that. Yeah. Not everybody has a, a really, a, 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 you know, revolutionary style of pedagogy. It was what he was saying, not how he was doing it, that was so profound. And I've, I found in different ways, with different styles, different methods, the same thing with Robert Strimple, Robert Godfrey, and mm-hmm. others, uh, Dennis Johnson, uh, others who, who taught here. So now, all these years later, um, you're here. You're on the faculty, and you've been here for a number of years, and, and now teaching with some of the people with whom you've studied. Shocking. Uh, the people who, who know me so well, nevertheless voted however unwisely to <laughs> bring me on board. Well, so, and and uh, and students now are uh, saying some of the same things about your classes that, that you, good things that um, you used to say about your profs when you were, when you were walking out of class. So, so how is it? What, what is it like to, to be here to teach in a place where you studied and, and in a place that had such an effect on you? Wonderful. I think one thing that is even better than when I was here as a student is the the sense of camaraderie among the professors working on a similar project. We, we you know, I mean, it, 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 it's always been the case. I think that that uh, uh, the professors here felt like they were on a common mission, but the, the 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 depth of commitment to spending time together, hanging out informally, working through projects, talking about their projects, sharing them with each other. Uh, really creates an atmosphere of charity and openness and free discussion uh, and common purpose. And I think you see that spilling out in the student body. Um, you know, when I was a student here, there were some differences over uh, worship styles and and uh, other issues that, that sometimes divided uh, the community. And I just don't see that now at all. I, it's not that everybody agrees, but everybody's learning, everybody's inquisitive. The students are fantastic. They have taught me so much. Uh, I've learned so much from their papers and from interaction with them. They challenge me all the time. We get some really good students. And it's not so much that they come from Ivy League schools and they have 4.0 grade uh, GPAs. It's It's... Wherever they come from, they have a very high determination to understand the Bible and all of the apparatus that is necessary for doing that faithfully as pastors, missionaries, teachers, uh, elders, and that that passion is so different from, from people who are wanting to become entrepreneurs or bureaucrats. No, they want to become pastors, and they, they want to become teachers. They want to take a place in Christ's body to serve in that way. That, uh, to me, um, creates a community that really is centered around the Word, everybody excited about digging more deeply into it and understanding how the church has interpreted that down through the centuries. You're known for doing a lot of different things at the same time. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> And all of it, uh, it, to, it seems to me, and to a lot of people, at a remarkably high level. How is it you're able to manage all of that? I mean, you're editing a magazine, you are uh, hosting, co-hosting a, uh, a radio program, and uh, and you publishing, you know, one or sometimes two books a year. What? How does all that happen? Just put different covers on them. 
I, I think a lot of it ha- has to do with the fact that uh, I have an amazing staff at, at Whitehorse Inn. Um, they are they are really skilled at what they do, and because of that, I'm able to do a lot of other things. And so, uh, uh, the Whitehorse Inn and Modern Reformation are uh, things that I can get involved with at exactly the level that I can afford to be involved in things. Um, and, uh, also I have a lovely wife who, uh, has bent over backwards to give me space to, to write, uh, at home and, and during the summers and she is a saint. She really is a saint in, in so many different ways. But, uh, yeah, I think it, it really, it, it's, it's due more to those factors than anything else. What do you think is the result, if you will, or the influence on your academic work of the work that you do with MR and Whitehorse Inn? Well, I think it's really helpful. I, th- I don't think it's all that helpful necessarily when I come out of the clouds immediately. Uh, I'm always told, especially by my wife, uh, when I preach or when I uh, write an article for a wider audience, just after I have finished one of those academic books, uh, I'm often uh, my wife often tells me, uh, "You need you, you need to dry out for a little longer." <laughs> and um, and by that she means, <laughs> yeah. Not now, now we're back to Machen, nineteen twenty nine, and, and all, <laughs> all of those allegations. Exactly. No, I need I need some time to come down out of the clouds, and that's true. Um, on the other hand, I think it really does help to uh, think about issues that I do think we need to share with with all of God's people, not just uh, people engaged full-time in the academic study of the Bible and theology. Um, So I I think uh, now what I'm really excited about is being able to do that more uh, centrally. My focus now is less on the academic writing. Mm. I've finished the four-volume series I was working on. And I want to talk about that in a minute, but go ahead. And uh, I'm I'm focusing now on more popular books, uh, Christless Christianity, The Gospel-Driven Life, uh, and others that I'm working on. And I'm finding that a lot of the, the thinking and research and reflection that I've done on those more academic books really has provided grist for the mill as I'm writing these more popular books. So it's, I think it's been helpful for me. Now, one of the major projects on which you've been working for the last several years is this multi-volume series with Westminster John Knox Press, starting with Covenant and Eschatology and ending with uh, People in Place. That Those are the bookend volumes. Talk about that series, uh, what your intent was, uh, uh, where it's, uh, what the audience is, and what you hope comes out of that. Sure. Um, well, I wanted to write a... Uh, I, I know this sounds arrogant for a, a youngster to be doing this. I'm not a youngster anymore. I was going to say, yeah. but <laughs> not so fast. Not so fast. Uh, I wanted I wanted to write something in the vein of, obviously not at the same, uh, not 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 the same height of, but in the same vein of uh, Herman Bavinck's Reform Dogmatics. Systematic theology, uh, I think of as a summary of Christian doctrine. 
And so you can't spend a lot of time on any one doctrine. You have to keep moving, and you can't uh, you've got to cover the whole gamut of Christian uh, doctrine in one swoop. With dogmatics, you can dip into particular themes that are prominent uh, in our Reformed tradition and investigate them a little bit more and uh, tease out implications and think about uh, those implications in the light of contemporary thought. And I, to be honest, I think one area where we haven't done quite enough yet in reformed, conservative reformed circles is uh, in engaging with contemporary philosophy, contemporary culture, contemporary, um, uh, uh, even contemporary mainline theology. Understandably, we've been so burned by what mainline Protestantism has done to the Christian faith that we, we, we really miss out on larger, wider conversations where some really serious work is being done that we can be edified by. Hmm. And uh, even if we don't agree with everything that someone says, we can, I think, learn a lot from the discussion. So a conversational approach, you can't do, hmm. in a systematic theology, you can't be conversational. Your, your whole point there is to lay out... Is to teach. Is to teach a Reformed view of the Christian faith. Reformed dogmatics, you can have a conversation. So with these four volumes, I wanted to have a conversation with uh, not even all of them Christians, but thinkers in our own time and place, and how Reformed Christianity uh, responds to some of the issues and questions that are raised in our time. So that's the purpose of that four-volume series that runs all the way through Prolegomena, which is um, basically how you do theology, uh, theological method, and then going to the doctrine of God and Christ and the atonement, and then uh, moving on to the doctrine of salvation, justification and union with Christ, and sanctification and glorification. And then the last one, as you mentioned, people and place, which focuses on ecclesiology. And in each of these books, I've tried to, to think through our dogmatics with the lens that we have been given already, historically, covenant and eschatology. Hmm. What would it look like if we really thought through not just the end times, but all of our theology in the light of covenant, the themes of covenant and eschatology? Not that everything can be reduced to it, but focus on that a little bit more. And you just finished another very large project that will be coming out soon, uh, uh, one volume systematic theology at Zondervan. Right. Tell us about that. <laughs> this is one of the the frustrating projects I've ever most frustrating projects I've ever worked on because I couldn't engage in conversation. I just mm-hmm. had to stick to uh, the page allotment I allowed myself for each topic, and it was a good discipline, a good exercise, and I did end up enjoying it. And I hope that it's uh, I hope that it's useful. One of my my concerns, Scott, and as well as yours, um, is that uh, we we have not necessarily we've relied on a lot of systematic theologies that are are really good and really helpful, but not really current. Mm-hmm. And it's been a while since Louis Burkhoff did did his uh, Reform Dogmatics in what 1932. That's right, and there have been some good 
uh, more recent systematic theologies written. But from our particular uh, Westminsterish perspective, uh, I think that we need to do some more work. And this is just one. I hope that there are others uh, uh, that that come out. Uh, but one of my concerns is uh, I'm very excited about the new Calvinism, as it's being called. Mm-hmm. Uh, Time Magazine says that this is one of the 10 big ideas changing the world. Well, that's wonderful. And I want to encourage people to investigate the doctrines of grace. It, it you know, it, it's at the heart of what I'm passionate about, uh, getting Christians to, to, to uh, hear the, the doctrines of grace. At the same time, Reformed encompasses so much more than that. You're only skimming the surface, rich surface, but you're only skimming the surface if uh, you've embraced the doctrines of grace, but you haven't really yet encountered the whole shape of Reformed theology, which cannot be reduced to five points. It's a covenant theology, a covenantal way of looking at worship, a covenantal way of looking at life, a covenantal way of looking at the world, a covenantal way of looking at the family, and baptism, and the way we hang together as a people called the church. It's, it is far more encompass. You can't just staple the five points of Calvinism to alien theological systems. Yeah, I... I don't know what you think of this metaphor, but I, I like to talk about the five points as sort of the on-ramp to reform theology. It's a great analogy. I've seen you write that before. That's a very good analogy. And there's a lot, you know, being reformed is is um, is a journey. It has been for me. It has been for you. And uh, we may start with soteriology, and that's a glorious place to start. Obviously, you can't be reformed without getting the doctrine of salvation right. But there's, as you say, so much more to being reformed. And it's not simply that we want to be narrow, right? Um, but that Scripture really does speak to these other things. And in the contemporary period, as lots of, as you've pointed out, and lots of people have pointed out, that uh, there's been a tendency among evangelicals to sort of set to the side uh, for the sake of, you know, whatever, doctrines of the church and sacraments and, and uh, really our life together, as if somehow that were, that were uh, indifferent or secondary and and uh, it doesn't look like that project really has worked out all that well. Yeah, and a big one here really is the doctrine of the church. I think that um, we have to put that that topic back on the map. We've had a lot to say about that in the Reformed tradition over the centuries. And I think a lot of people you know, often hear us say things like this, and they say, yeah, I was waiting for that comment from Westminster, California. You guys are so narrow— it's not that we're narrow, it's that we haven't arrived either, but we have seen this wonderful treasure, and we don't own it. It is the common inheritance of the whole Catholic Church, yeah, the whole universal body of Christ, and we're not the guardians of it, we're not the trustees of it, uh, we're just hanging around enjoying the treasure, but we wouldn't be good stewards if we didn't try to share this treasure with the whole, the whole Christian church. I mean, the faith has to be lived in a place. It has yeah. to be lived with people. It has to be lived in a community, and, and um, it's our conviction anyway, isn't it, that, that Jesus left a structure. Um, it seems to me that, by and large, evangelicals seem to have a, picked up the old German assumption that, well, you know, you've got the kerygma, and uh, church really belongs to dogma. And uh, 
we, you know, we need to get back to genuine apostolic Christianity, which really doesn't include uh, a doctrine of the church. And, and I well, think, and that's been American too. Yeah. There's nothing more American than hating church. Yeah. And hating, we go- hating we, government, hating uh, institutions, institutions, really. hating yeah. universities, and anything that that smacks of a historical, institutionalized form of knowing, being, and doing. So, a churchly Christianity really is a countercultural Christianity. One one other thing, um, as we uh, as we draw this to a close, what are you working on now? I know you're working on something. I don't, know, <laughs> but I don't know what it is. <laughs> Well, I've just uh, finished some miscellaneous projects, and um, that won't be of much interest to to uh, others. Um, but my my uh, uh, right now, I'm looking forward to the publication of the Gospel Driven Life because that's a sequel to Christless Christianity, and uh, Christless Christianity was diagnosing the illness. I'd hate for people to read that without reading the follow up book. Mm that I think um, hopefully points the, the way toward a cure, even though Christless Christianity had some hopeful uh, light at the end of the tunnel woven into the bad news. Um, it, it's a, it was a pretty stiff, is a pretty stiff critique, and a lot of people have heard it and have taken it seriously. That's encouraging, but I'm really excited about the gospel-driven life coming out in September. So these two things really are, are one-two punches. You, the first one really is law, in a sense. That's right. what I hear you saying, and the, and then the gospel-driven life really is the good news. And uh, so, if you read the first one, you really need to read the second one. Yeah, it was like D.L. Moody, who said that, uh, you know, he 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 preached on hell the first night of a crusade in Chicago, and then there was the Great Chicago Fire. <laughs> That's and, a nice timing sermon illustration. Exactly, and no one could come back, obviously, the next night for heaven, and so he decided uh, henceforth never to break <laughs> things up into one night on hell, one night on heaven. But that's sort of this one-two punch uh, anyway with the books. Scott Clark here with the second Office Hours giveaway code. The code is MSH1998. That's MSH1998. Be one of the first 10 people to email us at officehours at wscal.edu, and we'll send you a free copy of Mike Horton's book, Christless Christianity. Be sure to send us your name, your surface address, mention that you heard this episode, and mention the code MSH1998 to win. Now back to our Office Hours interview with Mike Horton. Well, that's it for this edition of Office Hours. We'll be back next month for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu and click on Westminster Audio. For more information about this podcast or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8400. 74. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.